0: Good morning listeners. Uh, Good morning. Good afternoon. I guess you, you know what it is. Good morning. How are you today? You know, I do the podcast. Sometimes I don't even know what I'm going to do when I'm going to do it, but I start writing and I start thinking about the things that I want to say. I guess that makes it good for the podcast. It's conversational. We're in the sixth day of the Russian invasion into Ukraine, and people saying, saying at least the ones that listen to this podcast, why the fuck are you still talking about it? You know why? Like I said, it is of interest of me. To me, I know some people. We've been spending what two years focused on. Um, The coronavirus. It's really coronavirus. Um, We've been, at least America, where most of my listeners reside, has been torn apart by partisan bickering. And rarely does the United States, as a country, seem to hold one idea in its head simultaneously. Simultaneously. One idea or one view. Let's say probably better to say one view. But accordingly, it appears as if 83% of the U.S. public condemns the Russian invasion. Now, less than 50% want any tangible assets of the U.S. to be put in harm's way. Say, suffice it to say, they don't want to see American forces involved in this. This is more of a proxy war. A proxy war. We've uh, The U.S. has fought proxy wars against the Soviet Union since World War II, notably in China, directly after that. But the Chinese nationalists and the Chinese communists, the Chinese communists supported by the Soviet Union, Chinese... Chinese n- nationalists supported by the U.S. There were the Chinese nationalists were led by a general Chiang Kai-shek who and Mao Zedong led the Chinese communists. And during World War II, both the nationalists and the communists had Japan and occupied Japan as its enemy. And ostensibly they were still kind of somewhat at war with each other, but their main enemy was Japan. And once Japan was feeded, uh, defeated, the Nationalists, supported by the U.S., and the Communists, supported by the uh, Soviet Union, went at it themselves. It turned out that the Communist armies were better uh, in the long run than the Nationalists. There's a, a view in the military, just like in... Uh, in certain countries, certain militaries are more garrison troops, meaning they're more of the spit and polish, marching around, uh, protecting government buildings and things like that, and harassing opposition. That's garrison troops. And then there's other armies that are more ham and egg, traditional battle-ready troops. Now, I'm going to get to the point originally. So, the original point was Chiang Kai-shek's army was more of the ham and egg in the trenches fighting against Chiang Kai-shek, which was the Nationalists, which was a lot of... They considered them warlords, Chiang Kai-shek, regional warlords in China that were under the Nationalist banner and... If Chiang Kai Shek had won China, it wouldn't have been a democracy anyway. It would be more along the lines of an oligarchy, much like Russia. Okay, and several uh, the precursor to the OSS suggested just as much that the na- the nationalist armies weren't as ready to fight as the communists. Hence, in 1950. The Chinese Communists defeated the Nationalists, and the Nationalists evacuated to Taiwan. Taiwan and set up shop, set up the uh, Demo- Democratic People's Republic, maybe, and the People's Republic of China. The, uh, the People's Republic of China was uh, the Communist one. So we have the roots to that. Potential conflict today because of that. Now, let's go to something a little closer to home. Prior to 1960, 1959, uh, Cuba was an ally of the United States, a former Spanish colony. It was became almost a corporate state uh, set up by the National Fruit or United Fruit Company. You ever hear of Banana Republics and things like that? That's the uh, these big producers of of fruit and uh, that were exported to the United States. We had they held a lot of power, and you also had tobacco interests, ga- um, rum, and gambling, and you had uh, gambling in Cuba, which was pretty much influenced by uh, the Cosa Nostra mafia. And Batista was the name of the leader of that that was prior to Castro, and Castro was leading the revolutionaries. Same thing uh, so Batista's troops were considered more garrison troops, not battle hardened as Castro's. Same goes for Vietnam with the Ho Chi Minh. And the Viet Minh, which were considered somewhat nationalist, uh, patriotic Vietnamese that were fighting the Japanese during World War II, they were, Ho Chi Minh was actually an, a respected advisor or operator with the OSS, the, uh, the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA, during World War II. They were very effective against the Japanese and post-World War II. Um, they even, the Viet Minh, set up a constitution, Ho Chi Minh, a constitution that was mirrored off the U.S. Constitution. And they were going to set up government similar to ours. But it turned out the French wanted to reclaim their colony. Vietnam was part of French Indochina, along with Thailand, and which was Siam. Siam. I think it was independent so Vietnam and Cambodia may have been mainly French influenced and uh, so the French wanted to get their colonies back and you know they had to fight these horrible wars Vietnam first of all that was French fighting the communists or the nationalists of the day who were seeking help from the communists and so all these troops having been influenced by the communists, the, one, the winners, may give you the air that the communists were better fighters. Au contraire, the communists were using the true nationalist of a country, homegrown resistance, to fight foreign invaders. And these places like in China... Vietnam, Cuba, Algeria, they were seen as throwing off the yoke of colonial oppression. Even though Cuba wasn't a U.S. colony, it was a former Spanish colony and the Americans pretty much supplanted the Spanish there, there. So, what does that have to do with Ukraine today? Well, what the Ukrainians doing is using their domestic forces, Ukrainian forces, to resist a foreign invader. Much like the nationalists of China who were considered the lackeys of the the U.S. And it's the U.S. troops in there. The Chinese communists did little with uh, very little with foreign troops. They used somewhat Some of the Russian advisors, but generally it was a Chinese, the Chinese communists was a native-run operation. So, when you have the home team fighting on the home ground, you might find it a little more aggressive and a little more ruthless than you would when the foreign invader, who has very little invested in liberating a country that is not their own country. So, I imagine the Russian troops are questioning right now whether it is important or not. And at this time, at this time we speak, there is, slowly, right outside of the Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine capital, Kiev, there is a large... uh, convoy of Russian military vehicles, you know, rockets, fuel, probably some tanks, winding its way towards the Ukraine. And what people have been proposing for the last 24 hours is this is part and parcel, part of the Russian stepped up attack to surround Kiev and use a more devastating use of force and not you know suggesting that their first six days of invasion was not uh, because of how they ran into very stiff very determined your, Ukrainian resistance The suggest, the suggestion is by fault is saying that well we're going to send more they didn't say they're going to send better they're going to send more devastating weapons to the front what does that sound like to you oh we're we're going to do better it sounds like a guy who came home late the night before and he had lipstick on his collar and maybe some glitter and trying to explain to his wife oh, I shouldn't have went out with my friends and stuff like that. Yeah, this is just nothing and stuff like that. Tomorrow, I'll be back earlier. I'll do better. I'll do better. And the wife is just as angry the next day as she is the first day. And instead of coming home at 10 o'clock, he's going to come home at midnight. And he's going to find out that she's even more pissed. And his clothes are in the driveway. you know, spread out, strewn across the driveway. So, I don't see that there's going to be a renewed effort. I see there's going to be a lot lot of equipment thrown there. Putin has to show resolve right now. The psychology behind it will be like, there is no other option for him. Unless unless we just go quiet. The news goes quiet and just says, well, they're going to leave and we're not going to say anything about it. It's just that if a friend came into your house and started a fight with you and you punched him in the mouth and he started bleeding and stuff like that and say, listen, you're not going to humiliate the guy anymore. You're going to let him leave and go back to his house and not going to say about it any further. That's the only thing, the only thing that Putin could do or... Something that the West could do to allow him to go back, because he—if he, he goes back, he's going to be labeled a loser, ineffectual, and in weak. And the suggestion that this renewed convoy, a forty-mile-long convoy that's being showed on the news, think of that—an attack convoy in real time. Being viewed from above. Do you think that the Battle of the Bulge initially started when the German forces came through the Ardennes forest? Do you think that there was a hundred percent real time view of them coming through the forest where no, they were surprised. The Allied forces were surprised that the British I um, mean that the German armor and troops would come through supposedly that dense forest. They, they had surprise. Now for two days, everyone in the world is watching this. There is no surprise. Matter of fact, there are eyes on them the whole time. There will be eyes on them as they split apart and try to encircle And my wager is, my bet, my guess, is that there will be a litany of drone strikes, javelin attacks, and stinger missile attacks against aircraft. So far as we know, and no one's really reporting this, this is really unusual, people are suggesting that the West should impose a no-fly zone. We mentioned that so nobody could fly above Ukraine airspace. And that would necessitate the incorporation using Allied and even American aircraft to enforce that. So that seems as a non-starter that it won't happen. But the, the reality of it is the Russians haven't controlled the Ukrainian airspace they're losing jets and aircraft and the idea that we'll just send better ones or more troops or more armor or more supplies to redeem that is somewhat of a I'll do better excuse oh I'll do better without really doing anything about it because think this would you plan a battle for months how long have they been doing this they've been at least doing this for about 4 months the build up maybe september who knows they they've been building up and building up along the borders of the ukraine and when finally till right after the closing ceremonies of the Olympics. They pulled the trigger. Did they send in, well, we're going to send in the second, second class troops, our second class equipment, our worst fighters, our worse helicopters, our most inexact missile launchers and artillery. We're going to use them first. Because, you know, we don't want to be too effective in the beginning. Yeah, I understand if your excuse was saying initially when they started they were going to avoid causing too much damage so there wasn't a ton of collateral damage so they could win the propaganda war which they are losing badly right now. And they pretty much given up that doctrine of avoiding hitting buildings now. They're they're hitting buildings and apartments and uh, children, women, non-combatants are dying. So this idea that they're just going to send more in. When you have a dinner party, and I'm liking the invasion to a dinner party for for people. And it can, it can make the metaphor... Find the metaphor that a dinner party is a lot of preparation. You have your plans. You have your meal. You have the courses, the progression of courses. You also have an idea of what you want to accomplish that night, what you want to feature, right? So you're going to put, if you're cooking yourself, you're probably going to cook your favorite items or your your best delicacies, the things you're known for. You're not going to roll out something you've never done before. And you're not probably most likely not going to use your good silverware. You're going to use your good silverware. You're going to use your good china. Your nice crystal. And you're going to be on your best behavior. And you're going to put your friend, the best conversationalist, right in the middle there. So he can control the center of the conversation. No one ever plans a dinner party. He says, well, I really am not good at making a beef bourguignon, but I'm going to try to make it instead of making my my patented veal scalpini. No, people start with their strengths, and they attack with their strengths. Anytime someone did a surprise attack or initial uh, attack. And if the idea was to decapitate the government, then they sent their best units, their best units in to Ukraine. And they were slowed down, in some cases defeated. Yes, there's some winds down in the south, but the south is part of the sideshow. And I think the Ukraine understands that because the Russians are going to have to support the troops that they have in country. And that's where you have, uh, when you're sending in support, when you send in support troops and supplies, you also have to protect those items too. So if you can't protect your primary forces, how are you going to protect your support forces? What troops do you use? So right now, I believe they use their B team or their A team, and now they're sending their B team, and they got a whole bunch of B team. They got their long-term officers and non-commissioned officers that have been serving long, you know, long enlistments, long commissions. And you have, and Russia has almost, there's no volunteers, mainly conscription army, and they're using mercenaries. So I view it as a diminishing return. And the big problem with that is, how are you going to get to the end of this? Because right now, at a stalemate, Putin loses because you have sanctions and you have pain and suffering among the Russian Republic and you have a growing uh, and reinvigorated Ukrainian national nationalism that's pushing them back against the Russians. very well, I mean if their goal was to decapitate leadership, and try to unseat them. That is over now because I can't imagine anybody in Ukraine accepting a Russian-friendly uh, politician. And if there is one in the Ukraine, that would be kind of like he would be totally ostracized by himself. It be might might as well make it a Russian governor, a Russian or Belarusian one, and. Uh, speaking of that when he says allies his allies are China I don't think out China's China is probably doing much for Putin but he also has the leader of Chechnya who has uh, led troops into um, Ukraine and the Belarusian leader Lukashenko who most likely will send his troops in and his troops if the 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 Russian is the B team now the uh, Belarusians are the C team they might as well call up the Salvation Army right now the world is all kicking in we have, you have Switzerland who has traditionally been neutral for several wars siding with the Ukrainians, you really got to piss someone off to bring the to bring the Swiss the Swiss into your side or against you. And also, you have Finland and Sweden, and Sweden supplying five thousand Stinger missiles. So, and that's that. That should equate about three thousand vehicles. So it's almost. It's almost if they get a 50 to 60 percent kill ratio with their stinger, uh, missiles, um, not the stinger, their javelins and stingers, and oh, they're totally, totally fucked. Um, finally, I'm posting on the cover photo is a traffic sign in Ukraine, and a company remade some of the signs, and one of it says, um, it's giving directions and it changed to, it's changed. I think they, I don't know if they put in Ukrainian and Russian, but pretty much is go fuck yourself, fuck yourself, or go to Russia and fuck yourself. The three, the three directions it gives itself, pointing to different directions. I, I hardly agree with the, um, the Looney Tunes uh, method of misdirection. By putting road signs pointing the opposite direction. Taking the Jurassic Park route. Where the Seinfeld character who is heavy in Jurassic Park. Is leaving with samples of uh, dinosaur DNA. And he crashes into one of the directional signs. And the sign he doesn't know which direction points to the port he's supposed to get to. So there's a a very it's gonna be very interesting because first of all, uh I imagine the Western services and Russian services will be uh using counter electronic countermeasures trying to change GP you know, GPS systems and stuff like that in Ukraine. So the next as you hear from oh, you'll hear on the news, they say the next twenty four hours is critical. Maybe. Kiev could fall or maybe not fall. The uh, convoy could break through or may, may very likely be destroyed. Either way, it appears as if Ukrainian resistance will only last a little longer. They'll just stiffen the resupply line from Poland, through Romania, through Hungary, through Slovakia, will only be strengthened, and Russia will still have its supply routes available. But they had three, four months to do it, and they have dwindling resources. I believe they have dwindling resources. During the Soviet era, it was always a given, especially towards the end, that due to Russian... Uh, maintenance schedules that there was always at least 25 to 30 to 40 percent of Russian equipment that was not able to take the field because of maintenance issues and they were never really good with keeping equipment up and you've seen that with some of the convoys coming in just vehicles breaking down breaking down on their own breaking down and running out of gas without interference from foreign forces put a little interference from there, and that's something else. I hesitate to say that the Russian experience of fighting in developing countries, in backward areas of their country, or or associated republics, has given them a false sense of superiority when it comes to military preparedness. They really didn't prepare. They became, I I believe, they became a garrison army. That they're very find it very important to to do the military parades. The military parades are for the public. The military, the people that perform in military parades, aren't necessarily the ones you see going into combat. And just because you can march really well doesn't mean that you can fight really well. so if you see a bunch of if you see pictures of a some autocrat or dictator looking at a bunch of missiles go by and things like that, yeah they look pretty, but can they fight? Well, that's all I have to say today. Thank you very much um I'd like to say. Good luck to our Ukrainian friends. And hope uh, I hope we can be back tomorrow, do a show. And then eventually when this thing starts tailing off, maybe we can get back to this uh, bartender thing. Oh, you know what? I think the drink of the day should be a Molotov cocktail. But the only problem I have is uh, Molotov was the foreign minister of The Soviet Union, he was a propagandist for Stalin, one of Stalin's cronies. So maybe they should call it a Zelensky cocktail or something like that. Give it a little positive spin. Well, thank you very much. Have a great day.